All right, Uh, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Our focus today is going to be on verses 1 through 8. Before we begin, I'd like to call to attention the fact that everybody in this world knows there's something wrong with this world. There is not a single person in existence that if you went up to and said, what's wrong with this world, would not have an answer. In fact, I would, I would dare you to try. Please, find somebody who goes, nothing, and isn't sarcastic about it. Every person would tell you, I don't know how I end up turning this every couple weeks, but I turn it away from me. All right, there we go. Um, to some, they might give you an internal answer to that question. What's wrong with this world? Maybe they say people are just too greedy, too angry, too heartless. Or people just want power. They want to control things. To others, it might be an external answer. When you say, what's wrong with this world? They go, oh, there's so much sickness and poverty in this world. There's there's no justice. Maybe they'll say there's natural disasters, uh, disordered governmental structure, not enough help where it's actually needed. Somebody will have some, or everybody will have some sort of an answer to the question, what's wrong with this world? Uh, Because again, everyone alive recognizes that this world is messed up. It's broken. Something is wrong. Every single person can see it, even though they can't diagnose it. Uh, The Christian answer, in its most simplest of terms to what's wrong with this world, is the problem is sin. Not necessarily any person's sin. Chances are they're not going to say my sin. But but when sin was brought into this world in Genesis chapter 3, that's when this world became broken. And until that sin is removed, healed out of this world, sin remains the primary issue. It is the driving force of all corruption, all catastrophe, all illness, all sickness, every single problem. Now, getting our minds back into our text for today, let's, let's go ahead and recall where we left off. Um, at, at the end of Matthew chapter 8... Uh, Jesus is is leaving the the region of the Gadarenes. He's being chased out by by people that are more concerned about the death of a herd of pigs than two people who were suffering. There were the two demoniacs who had been living in the tomb. Jesus cast the demons out of out of them, which are many, and uh, and the, goes into a herd of pigs. The herd of pigs goes into the water, and the Gadarenes go up to Jesus and they say, "We we want we want you gone. Please leave." Now, chapter nine actually begins with the words that Jesus is getting into the boat, and he's crossing over to. Uh, to his own home city, which we know is Capernaum. So here Jesus is returning back to Capernaum. After going to this predominantly Gentile region, they ask him to leave, and he goes. And that, frankly, is one of the most amazing things about Jesus. When he's unwelcome, he doesn't stay too long. He doesn't, he doesn't sit there and try to plead and convince people. When they, when they say, we want you gone, he says, okay. He's gone. When sinners prefer the destructive satisfaction of sin over the one who can save them, he 
he simply gets in the boat and goes away. That's where we left off. That's where we left off in the region of the Gadarenes, Jesus leaving them in judgment for their rejection and ultimately providing his rejection of them. So let's read our verses for today with that somber reminder, shall we? So Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own home city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Matthew doesn't show us uh, how dramatic this event actually was. If we were to read the same passage in Mark chapter 2 or in Luke chapter 5, we find out that this paralyzed person is not just brought on a bed. He's lowered from the roof. He's, uh, he's got four friends, we find out in Mark, um, carrying his bed, presumably on four corners, right? He's got four friends carrying him. They can't get up to Jesus. There's, there's no way to him. And so they climb on the roof of a house, maybe even Peter's house, and they remove a tile and lower him down. Now, just so you have in your mind what sort of roof that is, it's not like now. Like, if you remove a roof tile, you can't even fit a mouse through it because there's, <laughs> there's stuff up there. Roofs at that time would have been thatched together like reeds and sticks that are uh, combined with mud, and then they'd be, um, they'd be placed in tiles, really large tiles, uh, and then they'd be strapped together. So you ever have one of those like magic toys that you could go like that and it unfolds, and then you go like that and it unfolds? I wish I could remember what it's called, but they're really satisfying and fun to watch. That's essentially what they had at that time for roofing. And it was because in the cool of the day, where do you hang out? You don't have a balcony, you go on the roof. You just climb up a ladder, push open the roof, and you go hang out and, uh, and, and lay in the cool of the evening. So it's not uncommon. It's not like they dismantled the roof. They actually just opened what was up there. But still, just think about that. Dude is paralyzed on a bed, and his four friends climb on the housetop. It doesn't say they dropped him. Which, by the way, I, had, I, I tried to carry the tree that was up here. I tried to carry that, which is about the length of a man, up into the annex. Couldn't do it by myself. Took, uh, took Carl and I to do it. But, I mean, I couldn't do it by myself because I did actually drop it down the stairs and figured, no, I'm not going to do this. I just dragged it back in. But even with four people climbing on a rooftop, that's, that's, that's some work. And then having enough rope to lower him down... That's a lot of work. But knowing all that, what I find fascinating is that we don't really know anything about the paralyzed man, do we? 
We don't know how long he'd been paralyzed, how he became paralyzed. I mean, a paralyzed person at this time would have been seen as a deep sinner, especially, especially if they were born paralyzed from birth. They probably wouldn't even have any friends. So presumably, maybe this guy was walking and, uh, and uh, like doing work, had friends, had a, had a working life, and then he paralyzed himself. Maybe he fell, broke his back, but we don't know. We don't know any of this. So Matthew's intention for including the story can't actually be the paralytic story because he doesn't give us any hints about the guy. We just know he's paralyzed on a bed and he's got people that bring him to Jesus. No, Matthew, Matthew wants us to see something deeper than the fact that he had friends, wants us to see something deeper, deeper than just, just the story. The clue to find out what we're really supposed to see here, by the way, to know uh, is, is where the drama centers, where Matthew guides the story, where, where, where everything starts exploding. The real drama here is actually in Jesus' own words, in the way he says what he says. When he says in verse 2, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, there's really so much, even in those simple words, that I, I, could, I could spend the entire sermon on. Actually, honestly, we could, we could spend a long time dissecting those words. Um, but uh, but I, I want you to encourage, or I want to encourage you to do that on your own. Um, I want you to do some own study, to marinate your mind on those words, and by God's grace, come to see, see a conclusion different than the scribes and Pharisees do. But, uh, but instead, I, I, I really just want to briefly point out two things, and then build on a third. So what, what Jesus says, the first thing he says is take heart, or have courage, or be of good courage. Uh, I mean, it, depending, I don't know what the King James says, haveth courage, but, but regardless, the word Jesus uses here could be translated several different ways. Um, and the, the, the problem in reading it in just like an English translation is that there's two words in Greek for having courage, for being courageous. One means essentially grit your teeth, suck it up, and keep going. That's not the word Jesus uses. And obviously, by the way, that is not Strong's definition. I don't think if you open Strong's Concordance, it's going to say suck it up anywhere. But, but that, that's, that's my own way of explaining it. Um, and this is the sort of courage that you would see maybe in like a military battle as you see somebody shaking in their boots and you say, get up, son. You know, go grab your rifle and start shooting. You know, grit your teeth. Get your way through it. Just go. Just do. I, actually, a better definition than suck it up would probably be soldier on. If you've ever heard Brits talk, uh, they t they, that's, that's kind of the British mentality is soldier on, soldier on, keep walking, keep walking. Don't stop, just keep going. Be of good courage. Go, 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 go. But the word that Jesus uses is different than that word. And that's what, mean, that's what makes translating this so difficult is it's not not quite the type of courage that we would think, and take heart, heart's actually not in the word. So what, what is Jesus talking about? Well, 
it's kind of it could it could be translated what you need has been done therefore be happy be of good cheer be joyful this would be a word that would be kind of like a, a, a wife whose husband went off to war and then she gets that letter saying he's coming home it's done my husband's battle is finished he's returning i'm so happy i'm so cheerful now i get to look forward to him coming that's the sort of take heart Jesus is talking about. Now, the next part that Jesus says, he says, my son. And you could say that about anybody. Uh, English has tried to adopt this particular phrase by saying, you know, uh, uh, you know hey, son, like that. You, you have some, an older gentleman maybe say that to you. Uh, you know, hey, son, you're doing a good job. Um, but, but really, it's, it's just a close term. Um, it, it's when, when he says, my son, Jesus is trying to show endearing compassion on the man and his suffering. He's, 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 he's not actually literally calling him a son. Um, he's, he's, he's saying, um, it kind, kind of, kind of like a father. Let's, let's say you're a dad and you bring a, bring a gift to your son, right? Uh, and you, you, you say, hey, my son, look at what I brought you. So Jesus is, is building this anticipation, this joy. This, uh, he's, he's, he's saying, hey, be cheerful, have courage. Um, my son, look what I'm bringing you. So there's this growing excitement, this growing joy, this growing anticipation of healing, because that's really the faith that Jesus sees, by the way. When Jesus looks on their faith, it's, it's, he, he realizes and sees they have faith, they have trust that this man is going to be healed. So imagine you are really, really excited about a gift coming to you, and the person who has the gift comes up and says, says hey, hey, you don't have to fret anymore. Good news, good news, kiddo, it's coming. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. What? <laughs> what? I, want, I wanted my legs working, man. I, I wanted to be walking, not sins forgiven. Now, I'm not saying that about the paralytic. We don't know the paralytic's response other than he actually listens and gets up and goes home. But what, what I want to point out is, why did Jesus say that? Why did Jesus say that particular sentence? Why, why is it that this phrase announces healing in the same way that rise, pick up your mat, and go home does? Why? Why that particular phrasing? And that brings us to point number one. Yeah. Jesus came to take away sins. Now, what does that mean? When we read the whole Bible, when, if you were to sit down today and read the whole Bible, all you know, nine million pages of it, as it feels at least when you're doing a yearly Bible reading plan, um, when you, if you were to read the whole Bible, you actually see this particular motif of sinfulness being forgiven by God coming up constantly. For instance, Psalm 32.5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Why? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Or Isaiah 55.7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon 
Psalm 130, verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We open with that. Micah 7, 18 to 19, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Just search, go to, go to BibleGateway.com or, or, or use Google and say, Bible, forgive, or, or forgiveness. You're going to be inundated with lots of, of results uh, announcing God's forgiveness. Why? Why? Why is that so important? Why is the forgiveness, the removal, the, 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 the casting out of sin so important? And here we have in verse 2, Jesus looking on these men, realizing their faith, which is not a faith for salvation necessarily. It's a, it's a, it's a faith leading to salvation of, of his paralysis. That's what they're hoping for. That's why they've come to Jesus. And Jesus brings more than just healing his paralysis. Jesus says, I have forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven. God is not holding them against you. Now, what's also important to note is that in that culture, again, uh, somebody who suffers something like paralysis, deep sinner. Oh, Oh, man, who, who sinned that this man was born blind? Obviously, his parents or him, something. Maybe he was going to commit such a heinous sin that God decided, I will curse you. You're going to be blind because God is an angry, angry God. And there's actually speculations out there that maybe this man was guilt-ridden. In fact, um, in a commentary I read, commentary actually was, was, was highlighting the falsehoods of this story, but it's actually been thought that this man, this paralyzed man, probably had an adulterous relationship, and the husband of the woman that he was, he was cheating on his own wife with was coming home, and so he jumped out a window and he broke his back. That's, uh, that, we, we call that reaching. We don't know any of that. Again, we don't know about the paralyzed man. All we know is what Jesus says in the reaction to it. We know this is where the drama centers, specifically when he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus brought him good news, and not just good news of walking, but good news of feeling the weight of his sin removed. Because the reality is that, that all of us who are Christians know what that feels like. We know the feeling of our sins being taken off. This man was paralyzed with some form of worldly trouble. But Jesus didn't just remove that because there's a deeper problem. And when Jesus says that in verses 3 through 5, Jesus says uh, the scribes and Pharisees, which by the way, Matthew just says scribes, but, if, but uh, uh, Luke Make sure I wrote that down right. I think it's Luke. Luke uh, says it's scribes and Pharisees that, that get indignant, that get mad. They don't take kindly to him saying that phrase. Because frankly, they're right. Only God can forgive sins. They're right. They're totally, totally right on that. And here they sit grumbling to themselves, whispering in the background, thinking Jesus can't hear them, saying, this man's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. 
But then we have in verse 4, Matthew slyly, very, very, very cleverly eking in this, this saying, showing Jesus' actual divinity. So therefore, he can't be blaspheming when he says it. He says, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts. They're right. Only God can forgive sins. And they're also right. Only God, and, and Matthew's also right. Only God can know the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar, writes David in Psalm 139.2. Jesus is declaring his divinity. And the, the scribes miss this fact. They think maybe, 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 they, maybe, oh, he probably heard us with his amazing hearing. But Jesus is actually declaring his divinity again. And Matthew doesn't miss this. He squat, Jesus is squashing their lies and discerning their own blasphemous thoughts, which, by the way, I find absolutely ironic, and I think it's almost comedic irony that Matthew includes this, that these men are calling Jesus a blasphemer, and by saying that, they're actually blaspheming. They don't know it all. So I don't know if Matthew eked it in, like maybe chuckling when he's writing that, but I sure chuckle when I read it. So Jesus is here calling them out. He's stating his own ability to truthfully discern their own sinfulness, saying, why do you think evil in your hearts? In your hearts. Only God knows men's hearts. Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? And the implied answer here in Jesus' statement is that it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, I will tell you, in Greek, it's not easy to say. It's actually harder for me to pronounce your sins are forgiven than it is rise and walk. Uh, but I, I, don't, I, I don't think it's any easier in Aramaic, by the way. Um, but what Jesus is saying when he uses the word easier, I think, and this is my own speculation, he's really meaning which of these two statements is more true, is showing greater reality to this action. So it's not about ease of speech, but I think it's about which expresses the deeper reality here. Because sin, being forgiven, being removed, would mean this man can walk. Sin itself, not necessarily his own sin, but sin being removed from him would, would, would deaden the weight of his paralysis, wouldn't it? We're awaiting a day when God removes sin, all of it, from this whole creation, and he, 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 he renews it. He makes it brand new. When sin is removed, when sin is taken away, that's what we look forward to. Because the reality is that the forgiven sins of this man provide real relief, real relief. Not just, not just the ability to walk, which would be temporary, because frankly, he could walk for maybe a few more days, a couple more years, and get run over by a camel or fall off a mountain, or, or he could injure himself again. You ever do that? You have an injury that heals, and then you do it again? The same thing. Now it hurts in the same spot. Good job, Scott. No, honestly, just, just providing the ability to walk, that's a blessing, that's an act of God. This is an immediate healing. I'm not trying to discount that or discredit that. Jesus did something miraculous here. But 
having sins removed from a person is an eternal weight of damnation lifted from their souls. And that is what Jesus came to do. We may be weighed down by weakness in this world, but to be weighed down by condemnation for sin in hell is much, much worse than being stuck in a bed for the rest of your days. We are all sinners, but those of us who know that feeling again, who know the feeling of of the sins being removed from us, we will eternally attest that that it's better than anything else God could give us, period. So when I say that Jesus came to take away sins, when I, when I want to point that out, that's, I think, what Matthew is trying to point out. Jesus' mission was to remove sins. That's what he offered this man and included in that offering, this particular miraculous offering of, of forgiveness, also was the removal of his paralysis. In verses 6 to 8, we find Jesus proving his ability to remove sin, like actually having it happen. Uh, The man gets up, walks home, and then we also see the response of the crowds. Jesus is showing that he has authority on earth to forgive sins, and that's important, authority, because we have seen Jesus' authority in the last chapter, chapter. We have his authority over, uh, over leprosy, a ritualist or a ritual... Uh, ritual illness, his authority over even Gentiles when he heals the the centurion, centurion servant. Uh, We see his authority over over Peter's mother-in-law and many others, his authority uh, over discipleship and the problems we face, his authority over nature, his authority over demons, and now his authority over removal of sins. I'm saying authority because I love the word author in the middle or in the beginning of authority. I would just say authority. If the authorities roll up today and uh, give me a ticket for speeding, which I don't think I did, but I may have. Uh, but if I if I sped over here today when I drove, I walked across the street. Uh, <laughs> but if if the authorities came, they have authority over me. Why? Because they're keeping the law. And here Jesus has authority over even sin, the one thing that God himself is the only one able to take care of. So Jesus is trying to show his authority over sin. It's the, it's, it's the ministry of Jesus when he came, the ministry of Jesus when he died. It's the ministry of Jesus now. He doesn't just heal illnesses. He's not just a miraculous healer. He's God who can remove sin. Forgiveness of sin does not necessitate the removal of, of some earthly struggle. It's not like when you were saved, bam, oh, I can walk again. That really, honestly, very rarely happens. Very, very rarely, not at crusades where people fall over. Uh, the, the removal of any earthly struggle does not, um, does, does not necessarily look towards eternal redemption. Uh, that's why, so, all right. So let me, let me backtrack a little bit before I, before I just go down a road and start stumbling over myself. When a surgery is successful, we say, praise God. Why? Because forgiveness, because whenever, just to use the phrasing from Sunday school, 
an act of God, miraculous or otherwise, whether through normal means like a surgery or a doctor's visit, is supposed to be a window by which we see the majesty, the glory, the power of God. We're able to say praise God when the doctors do a good job. Why? Because God is the one who has allowed for those means, who has purposed for those means to do what they intended to do. When you and I heal from a sickness, say we get the cold, we tend uh, not to look forward to getting sick again, right? Right? Nobody, nobody comes up to cold season and goes, oh, I can't wait to get sick. But when we're sick, we say, I can't wait to get better. <laughs> no matter how normal the result is of any healing, it's supposed to be a window for us to see how wonderful God is. The man in our section today was made instantaneously better. That's not always the case. Sometimes we don't get better. Sometimes we get worse. Every year I get older, I find that I'm getting new aches and pains and I can't do things. The other day I tried to do something with Lily where I was trying to make her run around the yard and all I did was, was post, is what you call in basketball, where, where you put your legs apart, you put your arms apart, and almost like, you know, here I am, ready, catch the ball. I was just trying to look big for the dog so it would run away and be silly. And I did that and I tweaked my back to the point where I was standing there knowing if I move any further then it's going to hurt really bad. So I stood there like a statue for like 10 seconds. And of course, that's the time that 10 cars drive by and see me standing looking at my fence like this. I, I mean, I look dumb. I knew I looked dumb. But I knew I would hurt myself if I moved any further. I'm finding, ultimately, that I'm not going to get any better. I'm going to keep getting worse. And I'm going to keep doing these dumb things and hurting myself. But even that is supposed to make me look forward to the day that God removes the effect of sin from my life and I no longer have to worry about those things. When I go and be in his presence, when he renews this earth and places me back in a body that's not so stupid, hopefully my brain is better. But, but ultimately, I look forward to that. So even sicknesses present us a, a means for us to enjoy God. The man in our section was made better instantaneously, pointing to the effect of that one day when all sin would be removed from him again instantaneously. An unsaved sinner who has never once heard Jesus say, I've forgiven you your sins, who's never felt that relief, will one day fall into instantaneous and sudden judgment. That is not something that a Christian can say will happen to them, but it's something that a Christian can look on somebody who's unsaved and know is their destiny. Jesus shows compassion when he forgives sins. And he shows compassion on this man. And what do people do? They flip out. They get mad at him. Look at, look at verse 8, though. Look at, look at how they respond to the guy getting up and walking, this visible representation of Jesus' authority over even the forgiveness of sins. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. 
And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Well, first off, it's not authority to men. It's authority to this man, singular, Jesus Christ, the born, the, the born Messiah, the promised king. But when they see Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, and he rises, gets up and walks, takes his bed, goes home. Goes home. You pick up your bed and walk and just drag it home. It took four people to carry you there on it, and you're just like, okay, and you pick it up and you walk home. <laughs> I just think that's funny. I think that would, that would be great. But the crowds that are there who see this, who see such an effect of God's grace, his kindness, his compassion, his authority, and they are fearful. And that's our second and last point. Seeing Jesus forgive sins strikes awe and brings God glory. Now, the word for uh, fear is also the same word for awe. So when we say that something is awful, right, it means we are amazed at how terrible it is, right? Like let's say, let's, let's say somebody gives you a broccoli casserole, Carl, and you go, oh, that's awful, meaning that every bit of your being is just amazed of how disgusting this thing is in front of you. When, when you say that something is awesome, although nowadays it means basically everything, but when you say that something is awesome, it means you are so full of awe about it that you are amazed. It means that you are almost fearful to ruin its awesomeness. And when God forgives sin, that is that same sort of fear and reverence and amazement that, that any man, any person, saved or unsaved, has. The reality is that everyone knows there's things wrong with this world. Everyone can see it. But when Jesus comes and brings the solution, when he, when he forgives sin and removes iniquity and even does miraculous things like this, it causes everyone to be amazed. The Jewish notion of suffering was that those who were the worst of sinners suffered the worst. The Christian notion is, is that suffering doesn't mean the sufferer has sinned, but it means that sin itself, the effect of sin, is hampering their relief. Don't you want that relief? Not necessarily to walk again, not necessarily to get better, but that relief that reminds you that your sin has been forgiven. When God shows us his grace, it amazes us. It strikes awe and fear. We see these things, again, like a window to the wonder of God. God brought this man to salvation by forgiving his sins, not just not just salvation of walking, but salvation by forgiving his sins. And so may the Lord again bring sinners to himself through us, by us, and despite us, relieving them of their paralyzing conditions of sin. Let's pray. Lord, you are so kind. We are undeserving in every regard. We could never work our way to, to, to seeing your goodness, and yet you shine it in our lives.
Sometimes we're blind to it. Sometimes we're too stubborn to see it. At least I am. I hope I'm not alone. But you are always good. Help us, O oh God, to see relief, to feel relief, and to be amazed by you, knowing that you have come to take away all sin from this world. You are glorified in us for that. In Jesus' name, amen. That last song was written by a lady named Fanny Crosby. Yes, that is her name, Fanny. Uh, look her up, read her story, and then read the lyrics of that song and tell me she's not somebody that could see with absolute clarity the beauty and the wonder of Jesus, what forgiveness of sins means over forgiveness of any physical ailment. Glorify Christ this week and go in peace, saints.